Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris. We got a good but short show for you today. I'm going to do a few episodes this week, hopefully. I want to do three. Three this week, and we'll see if I can do three next week. I don't know. I'm going to try to to put out three. Um, One of the reasons for that is I'm traveling, and uh, I'm going to be doing some some family and business traveling this weekend, uh, and then next weekend, I'm going to be heading out to Iowa for a top secret mission. So, uh, and it does have to do with this whole social justice debate. And so I appreciate all your support and those who uh, do support me. It definitely helps me um, cover those expenses and do what I need to do. So um, I will talk more about that after it happens. Uh, Got some exciting things coming up and some projects I'm involved with. I uh, wanted to start out this program, though, by putting some resources in your hands. We we need resources, and um, I've told you before I'm coming up with a resource list. Uh, part of the reason I've been stalling on that is because there's there's at least two books I know of that next month are coming out. Well, there's three. There's mine as well. There's three books that are coming out uh, that I want to put on that resource list, and so um, I'm waiting for those to be available. But uh, one of the in the meantime, one of the books you can pick up is a really thin book. I mean, that's how thin it is. It's only like 34 pages and then at the end there's the uh, statement on social justice the dallas statement but it's called social justice versus biblical justice how good intentions undermine justice in the gospel by e calvin beisner and this was given to me uh by a friend um kind of washed out because it's so white the cover if i put it at an angle you can kind of see the cover it's got uh, lady justice blindfolded there i love it uh this was given to me my friend a while ago, she was last year, I think, and I never read it. And I pulled it out the other day. I was showing someone uh, some of my books and uh, I remembered that I had it. So I, I started to read it and I thought, this is actually really good. And one of the things that um, really stood out to me, one of the things I thought was that, you know, <laughs> we, we really have some amateur exegetes out there pushing the social justice movement in Christian circles. And that's why when people say to me things like, well, you know, Al Mohler or, you know, fill in the blank with whatever Bible teacher you want to put in there, you know, they, they're just not aware or you're trying to justify somehow why they haven't come out swinging against this stuff in their own backyard. I don't think it's because of ignorance. I really don't. And one of the reasons is because as I was reading this book, I, it just struck me how simple it is to understand these things. It's it's really um, ignorance that social justice, quote unquote, Christians are playing upon when they try to sell you this stuff, this garbage. They they give you very rudimentary interpretations and they expect you to just kind of, they, they cherry pick from everywhere and they expect you to just kind of go along with their interpretation until they can get to the next chain in their, their a link in their chain. And, you know, Beisner takes, I think it was like the five or six most commonly used verses to justify equality of outcome. And he just shows none of them actually uh, justify equality of outcome. Uh, things like the, year, the, the Jubilee year and uh, the church in Acts and their model and et cetera. So uh, I just recommend it. it it's biblical. It's, it's very simple. You're not going to learn intersectionality or critical race theory or any of those things, but you will uh, just understand better what does the Bible say about some of the basic assumptions, ethical assumptions that are being pushed on us. Equality of outcome, uh, equity is what they're calling it now. What what does the Bible say about that? And so um, uh, negative and positive rights are talked about in this by Beisner. He he just, he does a great job, I think, with just giving you a really powerful uh, little 
little book here, little uh, treatment of the subject. So uh, you're, you're going to want to get that. Uh, you're going to want to get that for people who don't want to put a lot of time into this, <laughs> and they just want to know what the Bible says. Uh, social justice versus biblical justice, how good intentions undermine justice in the gospel by E. Calvin Weisner. And, and one last thing I'll say about it, uh, it, it does have a, it's like half a page, but it just talks about how if you get justice wrong, then you, you're going to get the gospel wrong if you're consistent. If you apply your warped understanding of justice to the gospel, because justice is a necessary, you need to understand justice to understand the good news, then uh, you're going to get a lot of things wrong. So another book that uh, I started to actually read today a little bit of, and we'll see how long it takes me to finish it, is called Cynical Theories. Uh, just came out by um, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay. And uh, the, the subtitle is How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity and Why This Harms Everybody. I'm very grateful that there's some books like this. I, I'm grateful this book came out because... Um, it's it, it gives us some definition. Um, as far as I know, Pluckrose and Lindsay are both, I think they're atheists. I don't want to talk out of turn there. They're either agnostics or atheists, or I think Lindsay's an atheist. But uh, so, so they're not Christians, just so you know. But they're helping define what's going on around us because they understand they were in that world. They were in the academic setting. And so uh, they help bring some definition to it. Um, I've started taking some notes on it in the margins, and uh, I could tell within maybe two two or three pages that, okay, this is not coming from a Christian perspective. And, you know, ultimately, whatever solution they have at the end, which I haven't gotten there yet, they kind of teased it, it will, it, it ultimately is going to have to fail if they don't have it on a Christian foundation, if they don't have it on the God who actually created this place, who is uh, immaterial, absolute, unchanging, his rules apply to everyone. Um, you're, you're just not going to be able to get back to the kind of liberalism that they want to get back to, which was running off of the momentum of a Christian understanding of life, Christian philosophy. And, and that, that understanding is hitting a brick wall now. And, uh, and so um, it, it's very good, though, as far as describing what has taken place since, I think they start out kind of like in 1950, and they bring it up through the present. Um, so I'm already in the, the chapter on postmodernism, which is the first chapter. I read the introduction, and uh, I, I can already say that I would recommend it um, as long as you're realizing where it's coming from. This isn't a Christian response. This is just to understand in more detail uh, the the advancement of how postmodernism has interacted with Marxism to produce what we have now. So uh, I wanted to throw those things out there for you. Uh, hopefully that's helpful. I know um, one of the biggest questions I get is, John, what, what are some resources? And so there you go. There's two more resources for you to look at. Uh, this was interesting to me. Speaking of um, James Lindsay, I had heard that uh, James Lindsay also got a similar email, but I got this uh, the other day, um, about a week ago, I guess now, and I, I wasn't going to show you guys, but uh, when, I, when I heard James Lindsay had gotten the same kind of message, I just chuckled to myself. So this is by, from someone named Deshaun Williams. I never heard of this guy. Uh, and the subject line is racism complaint. And, and so, of course, you know, I, I heard that and I thought, oh, okay, well, they probably found something that I said, uh, you know, whoever this is, that uh, was was you know somewhat controversial, uh, maybe something I said in defense of you know civil war monuments or something, and he's going to say I'm a racist, and um, and obviously I'm I'm not. I <laughs> denounce that. There's so much evidence that I can give you 
but none of that matters. You got to understand none of that matters. It, it, this is not about the classical understanding of racism that most of us have in our mind. This is a new definition. It's power relationships and microaggressions. And uh, you just, you know, by definition are a racist if you're a member of the majority or oppressor class, right? So, um, so, so here's the complaint. Jonathan, I need to address some racism. I thought about addressing it on social media, but I think sometimes it's better to handle things like this privately. So you already get, you get the shame coming your way, right? Oh no, what did I do? It's so bad that you couldn't even publicly address it? Okay, so I am emailing you. Someone brought to our attention a tweet by you. Oh no. You may not know it, but this is digital blackface and it's racist. You may think it innocent, but digital blackface can be very hurtful to people of color. If you are against racism and an ally of people of color, then I ask that you stop with the digital blackface. I don't want to discuss it. I don't want to argue it. I just want it to stop. It's disrespectful. It's hurtful. And his name is Deshaun, and he describes himself as a Black Lives Matter and racial reconciliation specialist. That's his his title. And uh, and so anyway, I. I so I clicked on the link and it takes you, maybe I should just click on this while, while I have it. I didn't think about doing that, but I'll, I'll do it. Uh, let's see if I can find it right now for you to show you. Yep, I have it here. Okay, so I'm gonna click on it. So it's gonna take us uh, to a tweet that I put out there and I'll show you, it's a GIF that he's complaining about here. Uh, let's see here if I can, here we go. So this is the GIF. And, and so it's, it's a disco club in the 1970s. And uh, I think most of the people in this video, if not all of them, I guess, the people dancing certainly are, they have some, some African uh, lineage in them and they're, they're doing the disco moves, right? So here's the, the original tweet. Uh, I put this out there in February. I said, you wanna know how blessed I am? I can bring junk like this home. It's for my thesis. And I don't have to worry about my wife going all feminist on me because she's already got me whipped into shape so much. And so it's a joke that my wife, uh, you know, she, she's already got me under control. Kind of, it was just tongue in cheek kind of thing. It wasn't, I wasn't, uh, it wasn't a, a joke. It was a self-deprecating joke on me really is what it was, not my wife. And so, uh, so anyway, here's the book. All we're meant to be um, a biblical approach to women's liberation, and it's it's trash. It's a terrible book, but I was I needed to look at it for some research I was doing. Um, and so someone comments, everything about this book screams 1970s. And so I just posted a gif there. I just typed in you know 1970s disco or something like that, and this is what came up. I not even thinking about. You see, this is what they say was would be racist. Not even thinking about whether it's Asian, white, black. Martian, I just just people in a disco club. That's that's all I was conveying there. That's that's the '70s to me, uh, and the, and you can see the the artwork on the book is is quite the uh, the 1970s uh, feel to it. Um, so this was the issue. This was the complaint. This is what's got me and is getting me in trouble with the Black Lives Matter and racial uh, reconciliation specialists there. So uh, I thought that was was kind of interesting, um, but we we have uh, bigger things here uh, to talk about. Uh, we're going to be talking about a Gospel Coalition article, and we're also going to be talking about a post that some people asked me to explain more on music and intersectionality. Music and intersectionality, which may sound kind of unusual. How do those things relate? And 
frankly, now that I'm thinking about it, I don't know. How do they relate? They, they seem, I mean, it's just, it was a, one of these weird connections that just kind of took place in my mind as I was thinking. And so I started writing this little mini blog about it. And then people thought, well, that's really profound. Can you expand on that? So I'll try to expand a little bit, explain kind of what I meant by it. And, and hopefully you'll benefit by that. It's, it, but, but I have noticed a cultural shift. And I think I've lived through some of it. I think many of you, if you're my age or older, you, you've certainly lived through it. And you can see it playing out in different aspects of our culture. So I see it playing out in music, but I also see it playing out in the rise of intersectionality. And, um, and so I'm gonna explain all that. What, what, what am I talking about there? Let's start though uh, with this Gospel Coalition article. I, I confess, I have not read this whole thing uh, in detail. The article is called Why I Hate August by K. Edward Copeland, and this was featured on August 29th, last Saturday, on the Gospel Coalition website. I'm going to read it to you. It's fairly short, and I just want to give you some of my thoughts. I confess, I haven't really done anything more than skim this, so you're going to get some of my reactions for the first time here, but... Uh, but this is a problem, in my opinion. This is why, if you want to like take an article, a recent one, and say, why do people not care for Gospel Coalition so much? It's because of articles like this. So you can already see, here's the picture. Um, Kyle Rittenhouse, the 17-year-old uh, in Kenosha who uh, ended up killing someone in what looks to be self-defense, uh, is is featured here. And, uh, and the... Uh, and the person, I, I think this is the person that he, he shot, so, uh, or one of them, because um, I think he shot two people. But, but let's, let's go over this. I love hot weather and family celebrations, and yet I hate the month of August. My sister and I were born in August. As a child, I confessed Christ in August. As an adult, I vowed fidelity to my bride in August. Okay, stop right there. Those are the three biggest celebrations um, blessings, uh, things that mark time in, a one, in one's life. I mean, you're talking about your birthday, your spiritual birthday, life, eternal life, and then your wife, your anniversary. They're all in August. So if, if that's the case, you, you would think, right? And I think this is the contrast he wants to make, but you'd think August would be, it would just be flavored with all kind of celebration. I mean, in my mind, you could be in the gulag. You could be in a horrible situation, and yet August would still be a better month than most every other month because of the things that you, the reminders. That's what those, those events should be, reminders that, wow, okay, God, I'm still alive. Look what God's done. Look at the eternal life that's guaranteed for me. Look, I have a wife and a family. Like, look at what God's done. So you'd think even under the worst circumstances, this would be a great month or better than other months. But not for um, Mr. Mr. Copeland here. So he says um, that despite the annual celebrations of these significant events, my heart always hurts literally and profoundly toward the end of the month. Over these last few trips around the sun, I've attempted to self-diagnose my perennial pain. I've come to, to some conclusions I would prefer not to face. My heart, however, won't allow me to avoid them. I hate August because it reminds me that some view bodies like mine as disposable. So he's saying that despite the, the three biggest things, biggest blessings in his life God has given them, they somehow pale in comparison to this these horrible events that he's going to go over and how they affect him personally. And he's trying to self, this guy's in his own head. He's in his, he's looking, 
in my mind, this is a guy who's turning inward instead of looking outward at the blessings that God has given him in this month. But that's my gut reaction, uh, reading this more in detail for the first time. So he says, uh, headline here, still haunted. I don't mourn my mortality theologically. All flesh is like grass and our bodies are destined for dust. Those of us who are in Christ are awaiting new bodies. What hurts my heart is that in the country where I live, my body is disposable existentially. This was tattooed onto my heart around my 13th birthday. So if it's, it's interesting he chose to get married in the worst month in his mind, because I'm assuming he didn't get married before he was 13. So I don't know, there's that. That summer, I saw the image of Emmett Till's bloated, beaten beyond recognition body in a magazine. As I saw it, I reflected on the fact that I was almost the same age as Till had been when he boarded a train on August 20th, 1955 to go from Chicago to Mississippi to visit relatives. He had to um, have passed by Kankinkee, uh, hope I'm pronouncing that right, Illinois, where 20 years later, I sat horrified at the image of his remains. At school, I read in history books that 20 and odd, um, I'm not going to say the, the, the name just because people like to take my words out of context sometimes, but uh, black people from the White Lion, an English ship, were brought to Virginia Colony at Point Comfort on the James River on August 20th, 1619, and sold for food. Yet when I saw the relatively recent magazine images, I began to suspect August was still a dangerous month for bodies like mine, even hundreds of years later. It's, so, yeah, it's, just, it's interesting to me a little bit, just because so, he's not, he doesn't have any direct experience. He's actually saying things that he has direct experience with, his birthday, salvation, marriage. Those are not as profound and deep in his consciousness. They don't make as big of an impact. He uses the word tattoo uh, as events which he wasn't even at, which, um, so, so, but he has a stronger connection to those events that tells you something that really does tell you something. And I think social justicians would try to say, well, you're just an individualist and where, you know, we, but that's, that's the actually part of the problem is that your identity within this group uh, and the, the um, oppression to that group is so strong, it can trump even your salvation experience and the celebration that should be. It can trump your wedding and the celebration that should be. That's a problem, guys. For, for, in my mind, like, the, like for the Gospel Coalition, that's the name of this website. It's all about the gospel and how you know the gospel brings light into the world. The world loves darkness, but but this is what Christ brought. It's a good news. It's for celebration, and this guy's down in the dumps, despite the fact that this is the very month when he should be celebrating that he has been saved by Christ, that the gospel has come into his life, and yet they're giving this guy. A platform on the Gospel Coalition to write. He continues, this suspicion is reinforced annually. Every year I actually read Dr. Martin Luther King's speech from the August 28th, 1963 March on Washington. I'm always struck by the same line, we can never be satisfied as long as the black person is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. The fact that 57 years later we're still playing, uh, saying the same thing, albeit in different ways, is maddening. I wouldn't have room to finish this article were I to list all the hashtags of unarmed black and brown bodies who've been killed by law enforcement without the benefit of due process or trial. Can I, can I just say something that's a pet peeve of mine? Uh, 
when people say bodies, when they and they reduce, it just seems so reductionistic to take a color and then black, brown, white, whatever, and say bodies. Um, I just people, you you kill people. Uh, I realize their their souls continue, but this is new language uh, when we we go back to this bodies language, and it seems almost dehumanizing. These are the same people that complain about dehumanization, but that. That's just my personal um, pet peeve when people use that language. Uh, let's keep going here, though. Um, they've been killed by law enforcement without the benefit of due process or trial as Hurricane Laura decimates the South. I'm also haunted by the black and brown bodies that were stranded on rooftops during Hurricane Katrina in August 2005. Uh, he's, he's just tying a bunch of things together here that he wasn't part of. <laughs> he wasn't... Uh, he, he didn't have any firsthand contact with any of this stuff. And yet a hurricane, um, indentured servants from Africa, uh, and Emmett Till, that the, the, those incidences, and, and, and he just kind of vaguely mentions police shootings, etc. These all just sort of play into the same narrative for him. And it's, uh, it's kind of curious, because is it, is it about injustice? I mean, is Hurricane Katrina then part of that, that... Uh, I mean, people said at the time, even Kanye West said at that time, a different Kanye West, that President Bush hated black people and Bush was in trouble because he was racist. And I mean, is he is that what he's getting at, that Bush didn't care and so he didn't send FEMA? Which, by the way, it, it seems like it's after Katrina that FEMA now is responsible for all disaster relief. It it wasn't like that. There was a time it wasn't like that. That, w that wasn't the job of the federal government. I'm just telling you. Um, so after the past few months of horrible racial atrocities, when this August comes around and I watch a video of a police officer pumping seven bullets into an unarmed black body, my heart hurts all over again. Until an hour before I wrote these words, Jacob Blake's paralyzed body was handcuffed to a hospital bed clinging to life. By the grace of God, I once again reminded of something August won't let me forget. So he's his identity is so... Uh, immersed in this physical um, similarity he has to other people with a, a skin that is the same shade as his. That's the language he's using. You may say it's cultural, okay, but the language he's using is black, brown bodies. And and so, uh, you know, Jacob Blake's incident, um, without going into all the detail on it, because usually you start going into the detail on these incidences and you find out it's not the cartoon the media wants you to believe, it's not motivated by racism um, most of the time. It, 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 you know, most every incident that's coming to my mind right now, there's really, there was no evidence that racism played a part in it. And usually um, it was some, there was a justification of some kind. There was a self-defense or a, um, uh, a thought that, you know, even if they weren't being attacked, they thought they were, or there was some problem somewhere. And it, the Jacob Blake situation's no exception to this. Just go go read in detail about the incident. Don't listen to the little clips that you see on CNN or even even Fox. Don't don't listen to those things. Go and read a good article on sequentially what happened. And when I mean clips, I'm talking about that that what, what was it, 20 second video that doesn't show you what took place beforehand. Um, there there was there was a lot going on in that. And so I'm not defending to the teeth everything the officer did, but I'm saying there's another story you are not hearing. And, and it does, when, when you hear that story, because I have heard that story, it's not the point of my art, my video today, 
Um, you don't come away thinking that this is a racist police officer or a police officer uh, that is brutal necessarily. You come away thinking that this police officer was very scared because of criminal conduct, because of an altercation that took place before the video started, because of what Jacob Blake was uh, reaching for in his car. These are the kinds of things that fill in the gaps of the story. But, but this author wants to, he wants to weave a narrative here. And Jacob Blake is the next link in his chain for weaving this narrative that there's this war on black brown bodies and he's linked to these things in such a strong fashion that it is it makes him depressed it ruins the month of august it is a stronger link than his identity in christ his i mean if i was his wife i'd be offended his his identity as a married man uh, his identity is even just a human being who has been given life by god this is stronger than all that that's what i'm getting reading this that's what it sounds like he's saying um in so many words. Egregious contrast. Uh, He says, that's the heading. This August, however, the hurt is amplified by an egregious contrast. Kyle, so here's where we're getting to the meat of this. Kyle Rittenhouse killed people in the middle of the street on camera and in front of witnesses. And then smoking rifle at his side casually strolled past law enforcement. This is so, this is such a botched job. This is already wrong. This is already wrong. He didn't casually stroll. The police officers passed him, right? He was trying to surrender. He had his hands up. He wanted wanted to be taken in by the police officers because he was being chased by a mob. And this is how this author at TGC is um, twisting this. Um, Smoking rifle at a side, casually strolled past law enforcement. That's a lie. He didn't run away. He didn't hide. Yes, he did. He did both those things. He showed no fear. Um, running away, putting your hands up, trying to surrender to the police, what is that? He assumed there was something about his person that would allow him to approach law enforcement with a visible automatic weapon that had just taken lives and live to tell about it. Or maybe there was a bigger threat, the fact that he was had things being thrown at him, the fact that he was being attacked. I mean, the, this, um, I mean, the New York Times has done invest, I mean, a lot of the media outlets, but New York Times is what I'm thinking of, have really tried to investigate him for racism. Where where was he that night? What motivated all this? And they can't find stuff. He supported the police. He supported like a Blue Lives Matter thing. That doesn't mean he's a white supremacist. It doesn't mean any racism played any part in any of this. Um, earlier in the night, uh, he was even giving water out. He was assisting people who were protesters. So don't don't tell me this guy is is out there, you know, be, because he's just a, a racist who wants to kill black and brown quote unquote bodies, which is the insinuation that you're being given here, and that he's just on the side of the police because look, he he is not afraid of anything because the police are going to come. Um, if you understand the situation, which many accounts now have come out about what's going on in Kenosha, then you, it's unsafe to go outside without being armed. It's a war zone there. Uh, it's, it's, um, who was the, there was a Christian rock artist, I can't remember his name now, uh, who came and did an interview the other day about it and he was saying, look, at night, like I was by my window with my AR-15, just waiting to defend my family. And I mean, that's how it was. People from outside the city are coming in and creating all kinds of problems. And there have been many deaths now, there have been many injuries, there have, there's been a lot of property destruction and when you don't have a police force that's capable, I mean, these guys just pass by Kyle, 
when you don't have a police force that's strong or capable enough of dealing with this situation, then are you, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to be armed. And if you're going to try to go out there and you're going to try to defend your city, I mean, to, to be honest with you, the men who are out in Kenosha defending their city and trying to bring some semblance, semblance of law and order of some kind, some deterrent against the, the mob, they, they're to be commended. But instead, what we're told is that they're just a bunch of vigilantes, they're white supremacists, uh, you know, there's all sorts of slander going around about them. But how do, is there any evidence for any of this? Or are these just regular guys who, when there is nothing to protect them, they're going to go out and they're going to they're going to stand against the mob that wants to destroy their businesses and their homes, and maybe kill them? You know, Kyle Kyle Rittenhouse uh, reacted when a mob chased him and he heard a gunshot. If if you watch the video, it lo- it doesn't it it doesn't the evidence isn't that he just is out there trying to kill people and he thinks the police are cool with it. No. <laughs> um, he's being chased. He's trying to get away. And and uh, and he has people all over him, people trying to beat him with a skateboard, throwing things at him. Uh, he hears a gunshot. He doesn't know what direction everything's coming in. And, and some people have commented, he's 17. What's he doing out there? I agree. I don't know. I don't know what he's doing out there. But consider this. You can go in the military with your parents' consent at 16. Uh, the next year, you don't need your parents' consent at 18 to go in the military and actually go break things and kill people for the United States. You can vote at 18. There's a lot of things you can do at 18. That should be an adult. For him to be 17 and out there is is not necessarily inappropriate. If he's a mature enough, I, I know some of you are thinking probably about your 17-year-olds or 17-year-olds you know, and you're thinking they wouldn't be ready for that. Yeah, but how do you think we got this country in the first place? There's a lot of men around that age. Even in World War II, you had men around that age going off to war. And um, uh, some of them lying about their age to do it. But, you know, this is not, um, th- this is not, I think, what the media is trying to paint this to be. This, that this little kid was radicalized by some white supremacist, and so he's out there per, you know, going around the streets, and there's, the police are supporting him, and he's just going to kill black people. No, it's not what you see at all. And, and th- it just disturbs me to see this. There's an article, um, uh, if you're going to read any take on this, and there's a lot of takes that you can read on this, uh, this, this article by Leon Wolf uh, in The Blaze, I think, is actually, um, it just goes through and picks apart the media narrative. And so I would just recommend that to you if you're trying to figure out uh, kind of what happened. It's got some embedded video and stuff. But all that to say, TGC didn't vet this. They're letting this guy... This author just say, repeat the lies, and, and he's going to string this along, slander this Kyle Rittenhouse, his name, and string him along with all the other evidences of people trying to, to kill black and brown bodies in his mind, or ne- neglecting them. And uh, so he says, when armed mass shooters are at, like Kyle Rittenhouse or Dylan Roof, which those two do not belong in the same category, are apprehended without incident and unarmed black people are killed out of fear that they might be armed, we have a more insidious problem than a few bad apples. This thing is cultural, pervasive, and abominable. So that's that's the conclusion. This culture stinks. It's the new left critique. We're terrible. This is all of America. We're just all like this. And all the logical jumps and contorting you have to do to get there 
is shameful for someone who claims to be about truth and for a website that claims to be about the gospel. If your default impulse is to try to justify the seven or eight bullet holes in Jacob Blake's body, he's no angel. What was in his system? He was probably reaching for a weapon. He should have complied. We don't have all the facts. Just consider the, f the facts we actually do know about Kyle. He took lives in front of physical and digital witnesses. He's alive. No bullet holes in his body. He will be charged and tried in court, not in on the streets, and it should be in a just as it should be in a just society. Yes, he should. There should be due process. Exactly, that's what should happen. We should, until all the facts are presented, we shouldn't hasten to condemn someone. Um, and 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 the facts that we do know contradict the narrative that's being brought up here. That's part of the problem here. The inconsistency between how these two bodies were treated in Kenosha reinforces my childhood suspicions. So he's just, he's viewing the world through this lens of, of physical race. Uh, I'm saying physical because he keeps saying bodies. I know that CRT is, it's not physical, it's not genetic, it's power structures, etc. I know that's what he's getting at here, but he keeps using the word bodies. So this is what he's using. He's viewing the world. This is sad. This is so sad to me that he views the world this way. It distorts his reality and he can't even enjoy the things God has given him, including the gospel in his life on the Gospel Coalition blog. Those who claim my same convictions about Christ will be the first and loudest to castigate me for these observations. They'll be the most proficient at finding some excuse for Rittenhouse. It's not an excuse. It's not, it's not an excuse when you're neglecting what actually took place and the facts don't suggest what the narrative you're weaving. That's not, a, that's not an excuse. The most cavalier in discounting my trauma, the most eager to somehow find a Marxist or critical race theory connection in my reflections. And that hurts my heart, literally and profoundly. Here, here's the thing. This is, this is the message he wants to send. This is to neutralize people who would complain about Marxism or critical race theory because uh, they're insensitive somehow to the pain. And so it's, it's playing on compassion, uh, heart, it's plucking on your heartstrings to try to say, hey, if you, if you correctly identify that someone is using categories of critical race theory and, and that hurts them, well, you just shouldn't do that. Now, the, some people have called this Marxist fragility, right? A playoff of white fragility because white and critical race theory thinking, right? Uh, and D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, then if you're white and you have power, then you're, by, you're racist, right? That's just all there is to it. And if someone calls you that and you get defensive, well, that's white fragility. Well, this is Marxist fragility, like the real kind, <laughs> not, not a, a fake kind of white fragility uh, be, because of a new definition of racism. If someone actually is using categories of critical race theory and someone points out, hey, those are categories of critical race theory and you get all bent out of shape about it, maybe you're a little sensitive. Maybe you should listen to that wisdom. Maybe you're the one that's making excuses, not for Rittenhouse, but for the mob that was charging him. Maybe, maybe, there's, maybe there's another way to look at this. Um, but he, he is the one that's actually being aggressive. Edward Copeland, the author here, okay, Edward Copeland, he is going after anyone who would try to correctly identify uh, why he's thinking the way he's thinking about this, where he got those concepts and categories from, um, those who would try to bring just uh, about a, a factual understanding and support due process, he's going after them. He is attacking them in this and accusing them 
of being insensitive, essentially. He's in, actually, in some ways, he's almost insinuating that they're racist for doing that. So here's, here, here's how he concludes it. Uh, I hate August because I have a growing suspicion that no video evidence, no panel discussion, no theological argument will convince some to live out what we know to be true. God did not color code human dignity and worth. I wish he understood that and applied what he just said. Black and brown bodies are made in his image, like all others, and should not be desecrated or treated as disposable. God help us to see one another as you see this. Yeah, absolutely. They're not disposable. And and the <laughs> so this is this is what we call um, a a straw man. Uh, you you could almost say he's weaving a false dichotomy here as well. But this is not uh, the 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 issue at question. This is not. Uh, something that's controversial. The difference between the people who disagree with him and himself isn't that they just don't care about black and brown bodies, which is what he is insinuating here. So again, he's insinuating that you're racist of some kind if you disagree with him. Um, that's what I think he wants you to take away from this. Uh, he, he, he wants, there, there's a guilt that he's laying on you. There's your responsibility for his pain that he's laying on you. If, if all you support is due process and you just want the facts to come out, and, uh, and you don't weave this contorted narrative that he's trying to weave here. Um, but, but he's, he's <laughs> Gospel Coalition articles, I, I've seen a couple of them that do this. Uh, a lot of the neo-reform guys that are social justice led, they love to go back to like, hey, we're all made in God's image. Yep, that was never a controversy. That's not the issue in question. Of course, we're all made in God's image. The issue in question here is, Number one, is there actual systemic racism that motivated uh, the actions of Kyle Rittenhouse? And is he part of that narrative? And is he motivated by this? Is, is that what's actually going on here? Or is there something else going on? Let's have a discussion about the incident. That's the issue in question. And, and so this, this is a moral posturing to produce guilt in people who don't go along with the narrative. Uh, and it's, it's acting as a club, really. So, um, so I, this is totally disingenuous in my mind. This is a terrible article by the Gospel Coalition, and not to say that they they never have anything good. They're once in a while they do, but I, I'll be honest, guys, this ruins it for me. And this is one of the reasons that I mean, I've done a few articles or um, sorry, uh, videos on the Gospel Coalition and some of the things that they've put out there. But you know, this this kind of stuff when it comes up, and it comes up semi regularly now. Um, it, it ruins the whole thing for me. The, the fact that this could get past the editorial uh, process uh, for a website that's supposed to be about the gospel. So, um, yeah, that's a, <laughs> on a down note a little bit there. But, uh, but I, I just wanted to point that out to you. You know, this is something that can be corrected. The Gospel Coalition can apologize for this kind of slander. That's what it is. It's slandering this young man. Uh, the Gospel Coalition can apologize for slandering the whole country if they want to, um, especially for running an article from a guy who can't seem to celebrate, who see that is celebrating his own salvation in Christ and his wedding anniversary and his birthday of God giving him life is somehow um, more important and 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 it it's you know, better, it may, it makes things better than his down in the dumps attitude about all these horrible things he has, says takes place in August. Uh, 
the gospel should really be something that trumps all of that. That no matter if you're Paul in jail, you want to talk about some some systemic oppression in Rome, you know, let's do it. But if you're Paul sitting in jail, you can rejoice, you can sing. Doesn't seem to be an attitude that K. Edward Copeland can relate to. And that's a problem for a website calling themselves Gospel Coalition. Okay, I'm beating a dead horse at this point. So, like I said, I didn't really read it in detail. I kind of skimmed it. Now that I'm reading it in detail, I'm more irritated about it. Uh, let's let's go to um, the final topic I want to talk about here, which is, uh, let's see here, the music and intersectionality. I uh, wasn't expecting to do this. I just I had a thought and wanted to get it out there and uh, I developed it as I was writing it. And so here, here's the deal. I'm going to actually put my headphones on and we're going to look at uh, some music, some really old music. Some of you may not like it. Some of you might. Most of you probably haven't heard this. So a uh, little bio uh, informa information about me. When I was young, I still remember this. I was probably eight years old or so. I don't know. Uh, my father was going to a pastor's meeting and uh, he took me along with him. And, uh, and so I was really young. We, he usually, we would usually get like meatball subs when he'd take me out some, some place. These, these are my old childhood memories. And uh, I think we were going to, to Binghamton, New York. It was, a, it was a long drive and we're going through the Catskill Mountains. And uh, he had this old tape of this uh, group called the Sons of the Pioneers old group. Um, if I'm not mistaken, they're, they're still, that, that group actually might be in existence still. Uh, they do like Chuck Wagon uh, performances out, out west somewhere. But, uh, but at one time, this was a really popular group. And so I, I posted this, I played an excerpt from it. And I just want you to listen. I'll, I won't play the whole song, but listen to this. This is Roy Rogers and the Sons of the Pioneers singing a song called Blue Prairie in 1942. Listen to the harmonies. <laughs> This is 1942, and this was a popular song at the time in what would have been known as country and western music. I mean, can you see this being sung at all in today's country music, this kind of harmonization? No. <laughs> That's the answer. You, you will never hear it. Every beating heart beats a rhythm that is blue, and the moon has cast a blue reflection in the dew. So... I know in the country genre, since that's uh, a lot of what I listened to when I was a teenager and, and still tend to listen to, although I don't like a lot of the modern country. Um, we'll stop playing it there. There have always been vocal groups, uh, but less so as we approach the present time. So I think the Zac Brown Band might be one of the last more vocally driven groups in country music, but even they weren't like what you just heard. Uh, in, in the Zac Brown band, I mean, even listen to the, the name of it, it's about Zac Brown. And in pop music, this is even more pronounced. Uh, it's about the individual uh, being platformed and their unique sound. And if there is any harmony, it's the volumes turned down and it's the whole band is trying to promote this one individual. So a lot of hero worship. I mean, everything plays into not just sound, style, all sorts of things. And, and so what does this say about us is the question. I, I did um, a music, I, I was a minister of music at a, a church for a while. And 
and I had to think about some of this. I actually uh, be, sort of sort of started um, fulfilling that role after, in some ways after. I mean, it, the transition was still going on between hymns and contemporary. And um, so I had to think through that whole issue. And one of the things, there's many things that I thought about, but one of the things I was thinking about was that uh, there's there's a reason. I, I think of Chesterton's fence, right? You don't move a fence unless you ask why. Why was the fence there in the first place? Well, there's a reason that there were hymnals in the first place. Now, obviously, they didn't have the technology we have. We, they couldn't just put words on a screen, right? But they had notes. Obviously, they could have just given you hymnal with words, but they, there was notes in there. There were four-part harmonies. You were expected to know your place in a vocal arrangement. And so back in 1942... The, from the clip that I just played for you, people would have known their, where, where they fit, by and large, in a vocal arrangement, even if they couldn't read music. And reading music was actually something that you would have learned in school. And if you didn't learn it in school, you learned it in church. It was, it was something that was part of the fabric of the culture itself. And I would like to suggest we've lost something in not knowing our part, not knowing where we fit into a vocal harmony or an arrangement. Uh, and it takes away an element of complementarity because what, what that does, that teaches you that if you're not a, if you don't have the melody line, if you're a bass, let's say I'm a, I'm a baritone. So I, I'd usually get stuck trying to sing bass lines in choirs <laughs> when I couldn't quite reach it. But, uh, if you're a bass, then you know, you gotta understand, okay, you're not going to probably be a soloist with the limelight, but you're really going to add to it. You're going to be, because you're, you're part of something bigger, and that's the point. So you, there's a complementarity that you learn, and it's not a complementarity that's rooted in something you chose necessarily. This is just the way it was. You were born with the voice you were given. God is the one who ordained that. So you have actually a gift. There's something positive you contribute, even if it's not being the star on the stage. And, and everyone, um, for a long time, people who knew how to read music, knew where they fit in a vocal arrangement, they knew that. You go to church and you sing and you can pick up the hymn book and it sounds beautiful. I was actually at a Mennonite church a few weeks ago. It was absolutely beautiful because everyone knew this skill still. They still taught it at their Mennonite school. And so when they, they sang, uh, they didn't have any instrument and they immediately all fell into line. And it was, I was very impressed. And I probably shouldn't have been because that was the way that things used to just be. <laughs> but because I'm not used to it, I, I think we've lost something. Now, um, how is this going to connect to intersectionality? I'm going to bridge that gap. I'm going to show you. Uh, because it's not, it's not a direct connection. It's just, um, it's, there's been a shift towards individualism. Now, I know leftists love to knock individualism. But as a philosophy teacher once told me, Leftists, progressives, I think what he said, he said they, they love to, um, they're, they accuse people of what they're guilty of. So it's projection. They love to engage in projection, whether they know it or not. And progressives tend to be very individualistic people. Uh, they, they have the their, their lens of their social group and their oppression and all these things, but they always want to be the, the ex ones with the experience, the ones that are, uh, if it's to their benefit, the ones who are oppressed, they, they always have something like that. And it's all based on their individual experience and the individual lens that they uh, look at the world through. And, um, and they override cultural mores, norms, customs, traditions, uh, because of 
um, abstract concepts in their mind about equality and inclusion, all these things, but these are abstract things that exist in their mind, so individual minds, and they want to then implement that across the whole entire culture to control the world of things, the world of objects. So this is, this is individualism, actually, like on steroids. But the progressives, it's individualism of a sort. Progressives don't view it that way. They like to say that conservatives are the individualists. So without getting it all into that, uh, I just wanted to kind of tip you off to where I'm going here. Progressives uh, have been, in my opinion, pushing culture towards individualism for a long time, or at least they've been... Um, They've, they've endeared themselves to that push. Whether they were pushing it or whether it was just being pushed by another force, they've embraced it. And intersectionality is one of the areas in which they've embraced this. Because intersectionality says that you have a unique, uh, you score on this scale in a unique way. And the, and the scale is based on a standard of egalitarianism. It is this standard that we should all meet Right? If there were to be true equality, we would all measure up to this standard, but the problem is we don't. And why don't we? Well, because we're oppressed. There's certain differences that we have, and they could be cultural, they could be physical, they could be um, environmental, the list goes on. You gender, you know, you have these, um, these differences, and you don't stack up on the power dynamic chart. And so the goal should be to try to get everyone to stack up, to try to get political representation for those who don't stack up. That's identity politics, but you're unique because you have interacting different uh, strands of identity that make up where you fit on this, this chart. So for example, if you are a uh, left-handed person, well, there's a bit of oppression perhaps against you because we live in a right-handed world. But if you're also a, a minority, racial minority or, or something like that, well, then you're more oppressed. You, you have a uh, a different perspective too than someone who's just left-handed. And if you're gluten-free, perhaps, you know, you have, uh, if you have asthma, you know, there's all sorts of, of things that you could put into that, um, th that generator to find out where you stack up. Well, that, what that does is it actually neglects something that God has given you and, and not just God has given you, but it's um, in the sense of him physically designing you, but also the context in which God has placed you socially, etc., in history. It neglects the fact that God has put you in a certain spot in a certain time for a certain purpose. And you're supposed to live in that time uh, being thankful to God for what he's, he's given you life and he's given you purpose. And, uh, and so there's actually joy that can come from that because the goal isn't just to attain this standard that you will never attain and to be jealous of all those who have attained it. But actually the goal is to fit into the plan that God has. It's a, it's a tapestry. And so God has sewn you in. You're one thread in this tapestry, but you have unique abilities. Even if you have things that are detriments, you also have abilities. And sometimes detriments can be abilities. Detriment for uh, for, in, in one area can be an ability in another area. Just like someone who, you know, doesn't sing the melody, but they can sing the bass line. You know, that it complements the melody. It, it um, makes the, the sound fuller, just like the sound you just heard. And so I live in a world, this is the world I want to live in, and I do live this way, I think. I live in a world where we're all different. 
And like liberals say, they want to embrace diversity, but here's another projection for you. They don't, <laughs> they don't believe in real diversity. They want everyone to be the same and real diversity means that you actually do embrace those differences and you focus on what, what you can do within different contexts and within and different abilities and how those things can actually, uh, how people can live together who have those differences and become stronger. I mean, that's what E Pluribus Unum was supposed to be. Uh, and out of the many, one. But right now what we have is we have out of the many, many. <laughs> uh, we, we're in our little ghettos and we, um, in the United States at least, and I think throughout the Western world, uh, and we're being shoved into those ghettos, those intellectual ghettos, those metaf those uh, epistemological islands, as one person I know says, uh, because of critical theories and intersectionality is certainly part of that. So you're isolated more, and and people want to be isolated. They want to be isolated, but they want to be the star of the show. And uh, whether that means that they're the most oppressed, so they have the most knowledge because of their oppression gives them knowledge. Uh, or whether they want to be the soloist. They want to be the, 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 the rock star who's on stage and everyone just looks to that one person. And instead, I suggest that uh, there's a better way. There's a better way to live. There's a better way to view reality. And that's in looking at the, the design that God has put there right in front of you, right in the context that he's put you. How do you obey the commands he's given you? How do you fulfill the desires and purposes he's given you within the context that you have? And, and some desires might have to die because they're not possible in that. That's a, that's a good way of knowing that's not God's will. <laughs> um, you know, if you're a man and you want to be a female, well, you know, God didn't make you that way. It's a good chance, a good, not even a chance. It's just a good way of knowing that, well, that's, that's not God's will. So what, what can you do as, as a man? What can you do? And that's, that's an extreme example, but it, it can apply to all sorts of other things. If you want to be an artist, I mean, I, I wanted to be an artist when I was really little. I can draw stick figures okay. <laughs> Not going to happen. It's just, that's not who I am. But God gave me some other abilities. And so I want to invest those to the best of my ability while complementing others. That's, that's the idea of a church. It's a body of believers. The hand can't say to the eye, the eye, you know, uh, every, every body part is important. And, and so that's really all I was getting at was that, um, we have shifted from thinking of ourselves in a unified fashion, uh, in, in terms of, particulars and universals, right? And like I'm going, drawing on platonic thought, the world of forms, but you have, uh, you have universals, you have the mold for what things ought to be, and then you have the actual things. And they don't always measure up, but that's, that's the world that we live in. You have universals, you have particulars, principles, uh, and then the, part, the objects. And we used to live in a world that was, I think because of Christianity, uh, especially that uh, held those things together. That's really this is a lot of this is based in the Trinity, but you have um, particulars, you have universals, and we've lost universals. We don't have universals anymore. We have particulars. Uh, we have individual things, um, and we have no way of relating them together. And that, and if you wonder why social social, even just people, not just social groups, but people have a hard time talking to one another. I think that's one of the reasons we've lost the ability to do that, uh, partially because of this philosophical turn. A lot more I could say about that, but uh, some people were curious uh, about that mini blog that I wrote. And uh, so there you go. Um, now either you, you're going to 
you're going to hate old Western music or you're going to be looking it up. So uh, there's hopefully I, I, I did a service by enriching your lives with that little clip. Um, one last thing, uh, question. I, I've got some questions from some patrons and I want to answer these over the course of a few videos. So here's the question today. Uh, as we've seen with church closures and state restrictions, we have a lot of church thought leaders who have been silent or even critical of churches like Grace Community Meeting. That's John MacArthur's church, for those who don't know. Is this rooted in that same pandering we've seen on Never Trump or Revoice to be accepted by the world, or is something else going on in Big Eva? Uh, so the question is, is basically, is, is the COVID-19 thing related to, um, to the political liberal shift? Revoice is the sort of the same-sex Christi Christianity uh, normalization of homosexuality within Christianity conference. Uh, so, so, th so that's really the question. And yeah, I think they are connected. Um, I do hear you know some people like to say it's all just pragmatism. It's not just all pragmatism. That's not what this is. Yes, pragmatism does play into things, but this is not just all pragmatism. It's not all about what works. It's uh, to, to grow your church. I mean, a lot of people are making very stupid decisions. A lot of pastors, it's foolish from the standpoint of you're trying to keep members. Why in the world would you go full-blown Black Lives Matter? You're losing your conservatives. But they want to do that. Churches that are being destroyed over, right now over this, uh, this is happening. And so um, I think there, there actually are some principled operatives. Now, there, there's a mixture, though. You have some people that just think this is the, where things are going. I'm just going to go along with it. But, uh, but make no mistake about it, when you remove God, something, nature abhors a vacuum. Something's going to fill that place. And if you have these, all these moral scruples of wanting equity uh, and uh, inclusion and diversity, etc., then you're going to need some kind of force to bring those things about. There's got to be some kind of collective action in some way to organize that collective action. Well, it's going to be the government. Right? For, for all those who want to say, well, we can do this within the church, just listen to me, it's going to end up being the government that ends up doing these things. And so you, you kick God out of, out of the equation, and you're looking for justice, and uh, you're, you know, the social justice kind of justice. Uh, you're looking for really a version of a utopia that you want to implement on this world. Uh, who are you going to look to to try to get that done? You're going to look towards government. And, and so I think these things are, are intrinsically uh, connected because it's, number one, it's the same group of people, by and large, who are pushing the Never Trump stuff, the Revoice stuff, uh, politically liberal stuff, and are also against Grace Community Church for meeting. Uh, it's, they, they want to be in the good graces of the liberals. They're not, they're not, there's a half the country that they don't care if that half of the country, the Republicans, accept them. They just don't seem to care. They want to be in the halls of power. As much as they think power is a problem, they would like to have the media, which is owned by the liberals, Hollywood, um, the education establishment, uh, the Democratic Party. I mean, they want these people to, to like them in some way, shape, or form. And so this, this bone in their body that they have for the common good along a secular vein, not even a, a common good as defined biblically, but just a common good. Love your neighbor, put on a mask, these kinds of things. Um, the, the common good is you know, going to be addressing, we're going to have to address global warming for the common good. We're going to have to address COVID-19 for the common good. We're going to have to address uh, systemic oppression for the common good. All these external threats that liberals, uh, I keep saying liberals, I'm saying revolutionaries, progressive revolutionaries, they want to tackle you're seeing an echo in the church.
in, in certain quarters. You're seeing uh, in the elite in evangelicalism, they're echoing that. They want to be part of the, those responses as well. And they want to try to, um, to, to try to build them on a Christian foundation. The common good is rooted in some Christian principle of some kind. So they distort biblical passages to get there. But it's definitely all related. It's all um, coming down to uh, control, uh, authoritarianism, and it's kicking God out of the, the picture. It's going to be a cooperative effort uh, of mankind. It's the Babel instinct that you see happening. We're going to overcome all these problems together. And, and we, if we trample over the Constitution to do it, that's fine. If we have to um, really do contorted understandings of the Bible and trample the Bible in the process, that's fine. Um, if we have to trample over local and regional identities and symbols and, you know, whatever, that's fine too. Uh, but we're going to enter this brave new world, this technocracy. Uh, I think they know where this is going. I think uh, there, there's some people on the top that really know where this is going uh, in evangelicalism. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're paying attention to what the World Economic Forum says. They probably know people there. And where's the church going to fit into to all of this when global elites have the reins of power and they want to be in their good graces? That's, that's my gut feeling on this. That's my way of answering that question. I think they're related. doesn't mean that everyone's consistent. Not everyone is, but, uh, but a lot of the same actors are taking the same sides in, in all, all these debates. Um, I, I do want to put out some more uh, stuff uh, just to remind you guys uh, later this week. Um, some more. In fact, I wrote down a few things to talk about. Maybe I'll just give you a little bit of a preview real quick. Uh, let's see. We're going to talk a little bit uh, later this week about the Democratic Party and evangelicals supporting the Democratic Party. Uh, we might talk a little bit about the North American Mission Board. Uh, and people have asked me to do QAnon, <laughs> to talk about QAnon and conspiracies. So I will try to do that. I will try to talk about some of that, unless the world implodes before then, uh, which is perfectly possible. But don't uh, forget uh, these resources, Social Justice uh, versus Biblical Justice by E. Calvin Beisner and Cynical Theories by Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay. Hope you enjoyed that. We'll talk later in the week with you. And until then, God bless. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.